hi honori, hi kororia ki te atua, mongarongo ki te whenua, whakarapaini ki nga tangata katoa. Ko koari te monga, nga toto o ka te karaiti ti awa, ko ihu karaiti toku rangatira, ko te hahi o Petarahima toku marae, ko Cowan toku ignoa kwhanu, ko Bernie toku ignoa. Kia ora tātou, whakapainga tō wiki o te reo Māori. Good evening and welcome. Uh, let me tell you what I just shared at the beginning. I started with a karakia saying, honour and glory to God. Let there be peace and tranquility on earth, goodwill to all people. And then I shared uh, my story. So Calvary is my mountain, the hill of Calvary. Uh, the blood of Jesus is my river. Jesus is my leader. Bethlehem Church is my marae. Cowan is my family name and Bernie is my name. And it is so good uh, to be here with you this evening. Um, I hope you've had a wonderful day. What a stunning day we've had. Uh, the sunshine was lovely. It was a perfect day to stay inside and work on this talk for you. Um, but no, spring really feels like it has sprung. Um, for those who may not know, I have said that my name is Bernie. I am here at BBC as an intern while I study uh, theology at Kerry Baptist College. Um, and it is an absolute joy to be with you tonight. Through the incredible power of the internet, I can be with you in your living room or wherever it is you're watching on your device. Uh, whatever platform you are on with us tonight, it is great to have you with us tonight. Now, I want to invite you to do something today uh, that I don't think any of my friends have done over the last few weeks while we've been doing this live streaming business, is that actually I want to keep inviting you to comment and question in the, in the, the comment boxes on whatever platform you're watching. But if that's not enough, I want to encourage you to yell at your screen, just like we do when we watch sport. Uh, but this way, I'm actually going to hear you. Uh, you know, it's, it's, I'm not going to be like the referees that can't hear what you're saying. If you yell at your screen, if you comment away, I'm going to hear it. And we're going to be interacting. And it's going to be a good time. All right? Great. Yeah, I heard that. That was good. That was good. It's already working. It's already working. Uh, but let me say this, though. I am missing uh, seeing more faces here. Uh, you know, we, we definitely miss you here at BBC and we can't wait to hopefully maybe next weekend we're gathering again. But I wanted to issue a challenge to all my uh, Sunday evening friends and Fano who would normally come along. So normally, you know, when we gather together, Sunday morning's like the biggest service. Not next time we gather in a Sunday evening service. What I want to, want to have happen here is this place be absolutely packed, all right? Rob's freaking out when I'm saying this, but that's okay. He's excited at the same time. But let's make Sunday evening's first service back bigger, brighter, more boisterous than Sunday morning could ever be. That's my challenge to all of you out there as you're watching this evening. Of course, only do that if it's safe, only if the Prime Minister says we're at level one and all that stuff. Uh, don't just do it because Bernie said it because then I get in trouble and that's not great. Um, so we are in a message series now called Things Jesus Never Said. And you might be asking, why would a church to do a series about the things that he didn't say? Isn't the whole point of church to talk about the things that he did say? And Maybe uh, if you are new to Christianity or you don't know much about the Bible, uh, when you open up Bible, you can see that there's these four books in there. They're called Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. They're the Gospels in the New Testament. And they're different to the rest of the books in the Bible because in those, in some versions of the Bible, there's these red letters. And the red letters are what Jesus said. Um, and those words are powerful. They're otherworldly. They're beyond anything we could ever uh, fully uh, get our heads around. So, But the purpose of the series, though, is to look at what he did say, but looking at it and what he didn't say. Um, it's a bit confusing, but sometimes it helps to look at what he didn't say 
what he could have said or what I might have said, uh, but what he didn't say, to truly embrace the power of what it is that he did say. And last week, Mon opened up with uh, what Jesus didn't say about forgiveness. Um, And tonight, we're going to be looking about what he didn't say about happiness. Um, And what I know about almost all of you, wherever it is that you are watching tonight, is that you want to be happy. Not many of you will be going through life wanting to be unhappy. Um, You don't want to be miserable. Your goal isn't to be miserable in life. So what we're going to do is look at what Jesus didn't say about happiness to find the power of what it is that he did actually say. But before we do that, just like Monica did last week, I'm going to give you a few things that Jesus didn't say just to get us, get us in the mood, get a bit of fun going. So Jesus did not say, go into all the world and preach whatever makes people happy. He did not say, whoever wants to be my disciple must affirm themselves, avoid the cross and follow their own heart. And he never said, ask and it will be given to you because God is your celestial genie granting your wishes. And he didn't say, go do what makes you happy happy. God never said any about any, Jesus never said any of that about happiness at all. So tonight uh, we're going to be focusing around a story that we find in the gospel of John. The story is in chapter eight and it's about a woman who is caught in adultery and is brought before Jesus. And at the very end of the story, uh, there's a thing that Jesus says that is so powerful and it has the potential to transform our lives. So here we go. At dawn, he, being Jesus, appeared again in the temple courts where all of the people gathered around him and he sat down to teach them. The teachers of the law and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. They made her stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. The law Moses commanded us to stone such woman. Now what do you say? They were using this this question as a trap in order to have a basis for accusing him. All right, so we'll pause just there because I want us to visualize this this evening. Um, So Jesus is in this town square. He's just gathered a bunch of guys together. They're going to do a Bible study, maybe talk about what he shared at the synagogue the day before. They're hanging out, talking, and then all of a sudden this group, this gang of hypocritical religious men rock up and they're dragging this woman that has been caught in the act of adultery. There's a couple of things that if we had more time, I'd like to explore a bit more uh, but they are the first is that actually, where's the guy in this story? He's just not there. He's just missing from the whole thing. He ain't there. He, he gone. The second is, what were these guys doing to be in a place where they could catch a woman in adultery? Where were they peeping? Where were they hanging out? What were they doing? Because um, the, the thing is, if she was caught in the act of adultery, you could imagine that she was brought in that state. So there's a high chance she's been brought before Jesus in front of these men, barely dressed, uh, one of the most humiliating and lowest moments of her life. It gets more interesting because the thing is, the men obviously don't care about her one bit. For them, she's a tool so that they can trap Jesus. They made this woman stand before the group and said to Jesus, Teacher, this woman was caught in the act of adultery. In the law of Moses, it commands us to stone such a woman. Imagine this. This is a group of guys that probably got their stones in hand or a sack of stones over their shoulder ready to go. And what they're about to do in a moment is take those stones and pelt this woman until she does not, as she's no longer alive. Horrific, horrific, horrific stuff. And they turn to Jesus and say, hey, what do you say? What do you say about this? Verse 6, at the end of that, the scripture just read, shows the motives behind the question that the whole point of this was to be a trap for Jesus, 
to uh, put him in a situation where it was a no-win situation. Because according to the law of Moses, this woman was guilty. And according to the law of Moses, she should be stoned to death. So Jesus is in an odd spot. Because if he agrees and says, yes, go ahead and kill her, he loses his reputation for being full of grace and being loving. But on the other hand, he says, oh, it's not much of a big deal. You know, let's make an exception here. He's breaking the law of Moses and apparently condoning the sin of adultery. But what, the world, what in the world is Jesus going to do? Well, he's in a no-win situation, but what does he do? We read next in verses 8, verse 6, Jesus bent down and started to write on the ground with his finger. What did Jesus write in the sand? Well, honestly, we don't know for sure, uh, but we have some ideas. Later manuscripts say that Jesus wrote the sins of the hypocritical men accusing this woman in the sand. We don't know for sure if it's true, but I tend to think it's likely because the words used uh, in this part, there's two different Greek words that he translated around the idea of writing down. The first word, which means uh, to write down is graphene. Um, and the other word which is used in this context is the word which means to write down record against someone, which is katagraphene or katagraphene. Forgive me if my pronunciation is not correct there. Um, kata meaning against. So whatever Jesus wrote in the sand, it was something against something or against someone. So let's picture this in a modern context. Jesus is looking out at the Pharisees and he, maybe he sees Phil. Phil the Pharisee. And he bends down and he goes, Phil, whew, Phil, I don't have to go back too far to know about your Google history. Bikini Babes, 5 p.m. on Tuesday. That was you. And maybe he just keeps going on. And for each of the, the Pharisees that are there, he's just writing in the sand. Jim, you did that. Ted, you did that. I don't think they're very old school biblical names, but you know, you get the picture. Um, and he starts writing them away. And, and he keeps doing this. Um, for each of the people that were there bringing accusation against the woman. But as the story continues, they keep on questioning him. He straightens up and says to them, let any of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And then he gets back down and he keeps writing in the sand. At this, those who heard began to go away one at a time, the older ones first until only Jesus was left with the woman still standing there. Again, what's interesting is in the original language, is when it's saying without sin, it doesn't just mean a man that is without sin. It's, it, the Greek word also means not just without sin, but not only did you not sin, but also do not want to sin. So let's get real about this. So even for the best intention Christian, you would be reeling from a statement like this. Because we all know, even if we try our best, every now and again, boom, there it is, that thought that's a bit questionable. Every now and again, boom. There's that eruption of anger as you're driving to church and you're supposed to be preaching at 6.30 p.m. That was me tonight. And you've, you've, you've gone down this path. You've sinned. Even if you don't intend or setting out to do it, you found yourself doing it or thinking about doing it. So it's not surprising then that the, Pharise the Pharisees begin to reel from this and begin to start walking away. One by one, they begin to leave. Phil leaves first, then Ted, then Jim. Then the rest of them are all gone, leaving their stones in the sand, and walking away. Until it's only this woman and Jesus left. So Jesus straightened up and asked her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? No one, sir, she said. Then neither do I condemn you. But 
The trick is, what does Jesus say next? And he doesn't say, then neither do I condemn you. So go now and do whatever makes you happy. He doesn't say, go now, follow your heart. It doesn't matter what you do as long as you don't hurt anybody. And he doesn't say, go now and you do you, boo-boo. Do whatever makes you happy. Jesus actually says, he declares this. He goes, go now and leave your life of sin. This wasn't a condemning, judgmental statement. This was full of love and you can feel the urgency. He declares it. Go now, don't wait, you're free. Go now, don't wait, live a better life. Go now, don't wait, you don't have to live in shame anymore. You don't have to live for the lower things of this world. You don't have to be afraid or live in the darkness. I've set you free. Go now and be free from your life of sin. It's full of love, full of grace. You don't have to be held hostage anymore. You're free to go and walk in truth. Why do we give in to temptation? Simply, for a lot of us, because it's fun. Or it seems fun, it seems appealing. It's... The, uh, it looks appealing, it looks great. Hebrews uh, writes about it, calling it the fleeting pleasures of sin. It's pleasurable for a little while, but then ultimately it leads to eventual pain to yourself. Sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. Let me say that again. Sin, temptation, it promises satisfaction. You're going to like this. It's going to be good. It's going to be great. It's going to make you feel happy. You're really going to enjoy it. It promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God and eventual pain to you. How did this woman find herself in this situation? Honestly, we don't know the full story of this woman. We don't know who she was like or what she was like. Sure, maybe she was an evil woman who had set out that morning, I'm going to go out and destroy me some relationships. I'm going to break up some marriages. But I don't think that's the case. I don't think that's who this lady is. I think she was a decent, kind, maybe even a God-fearing lady who has been caught up in a series of poor decisions. In a modern context, maybe her story was a bit more like this. Maybe she was married young. Maybe her husband had grown cold, inattentive, was beginning to take her for granted, was becoming verbally, maybe even physically abusive. At work, though, there's this guy. He's recently started. He's a nice guy. He's kind to her. He compliments her. He likes her work. He notices her hair when she gets it done. It's innocent. There's nothing wrong. He's funny. He's thoughtful. He begins commenting on her Instagram posts, giving those hearts, giving those fires on the stories. And he finds, she finds herself thinking, looking forward to the next time she's going to be able to see him. One day at work, they stay late. Together, he opens up about how his marriage isn't doing very well, how they're struggling. They begin to connect on a deeper level. Then it happens. He tells her, I've made a mistake. I think I've married the wrong woman. If only I could have married someone like you. He accidentally brushes her arm. Or was it not accidentally? She realizes her emotions are out of control. She's strongly attracted to this person. She knows it's wrong, but it feels so right at the same time. He's what's missing. He'd make me happy. She goes to her girlfriend and she goes, you do you, boo-boo. You follow your heart. And step by seemingly insignificant step, 
one seemingly insignificant decision after another, after another, after another, after another. She finds herself barely dressed in the most publicly shamed moment of her life. How does she get here? Sin promises satisfaction at the disobedience to God, which can lead to eventual pain for yourself. Why do many of us end up in similar places today? We live in a very relativistic culture. What does the word or idea of relativism mean? Relativism is the belief that everything is relative. In other words, there is no absolute truth. You hear this all the time in culture today. Well, that may be true to you, but it's not true to me. That's your truth, but I have a different truth. You live your truth. I'll live my truth. There's no such thing as absolute truth. So I'm just going to do whatever makes me happy. What's true to you isn't true to me. Do you. Do what makes you happy. Without a belief in an absolute truth, truth is defined by whatever makes me happy or makes me feel fulfilled. And when the bottom line is my happiness or search for fulfillment, when the bottom line is my happiness or my search for fulfillment, happiness becomes the standard by which I judge my actions. Relativism hates the word obedience, as it means giving up your truth for somebody else's. And a lot of us wrestle with the idea that to be a Christian, you have to obey the rules. That the rules of holiness, which is obedience to God, are in, a place to, are in place to steal our happiness. That you can't be holy and happy. Many of us also share another perspective that if I obey God in return, I shall be blessed or happier. The if I follow God's rules, my life should be all roses perspective. Both of these perspectives rob us of a truth, uh, rob us of a bigger picture of what our relationship with Jesus can truly be like. So if our pursuit of worldly happiness is actually a pursuit of sin that leads to our own detriment, and our relationship with Jesus doesn't, quite, doesn't equate to a pay and obey, everything will be okay scenario, then what is it actually supposed to be like? It's this. Jesus' death on the cross saves us blesses us, enables us to come to him. We don't deserve or could ever do anything to deserve any of that. He invites us to turn to him, to be with him, follow his leading. Our closeness to him results in us feeling fulfilled. We've found the place that humans are supposed to be. Temptation tries to pull us away. Bad days still happen. Jesus is there saying, be near, don't go after that stuff. It won't leave you happy or fulfilled. You, can get more blessing. you can't get more blessing or happiness by obeying. We obey and follow because we have been blessed and because Jesus is a source of fulfillment. We can view it like this. I was trying to think of a, a story or an image I could paint for you to kind of help, help us understand this idea tonight. And I came up with this. So imagine uh, you awake and you're in the middle of a bleak, dry desert. Everywhere around you for kilometers after kilometers is just sand. Just horrible, nasty, gritty sand. And you're wandering through, you're journeying ahead, trying to find some place of solace, some place of rest. The sun is beating down, your skin is cracking, the sand is blowing past and ripping at your face. And every now and again, you see in the distance these, these mirages, these, these places of promise, and you see, you see, McDonald's with an endless supply of cheeseburgers in front of it. You see the latest Jeep SUV in the distance. You're like, oh, that'll make my life easier. I'll be able to get into that. I'll be able to go. You, you see the most beautiful woman in the distance. She will make all my dreams possible. 
But as you pursue each of these different mirages, you never reach them. You never get there. You never find your place. You never find yourself meeting each of those. And you do this for days to the point of absolute exhaustion. You break down. You can't do this anymore. And you fall face down in the sand and you wait for the vultures to come and pick at your bones. It's in this moment of surrender, in this moment of brokenness, you hear a voice say, come with me. And he lifts you up from the sand, puts your arm around his shoulder and begins to carry you. And as he carries you, you see the landscape in front of you change. The yellow harsh sand turns to green luscious grass. You feel the shade of trees start to ease the burning of your skin. And as you look around, more trees appear, the grass becomes more ample, and he brings you and he sits you next to a well. And he says, drink, be fulfilled, be right again, be restored. Here is a radio so that you can talk to me. There is some shelter so you can be out of the harshness of this desert that we are surrounded by. I'm going to go look for others. I will be back soon. And the man turns and he leaves. You put your whole head into that well of water. You drink deep to the point you think you're going to drown. And you feel the cool, refreshing water throw through every pore of your body. And you do that whole Maybelline thing where you whip your hair back out and it goes, sun shower thing. And you crawl over to the nearby tree and you sit in the shade and you begin to take in the surroundings that are around you. Yes, it's, it's nothing special. It's not the Hilton. There is a basic shelter. There's the well for water. There's trees with fruit. I have everything here that I'd ever need to survive. And as you're sitting and you're watching, you're seeing the man bring back more and more people from the desert. Some of them come in and they've got huge scars down the sides of their body or the faces that have been attacked and they're bruised and they're swollen. People who are coming with who are missing limbs. It's a harsh environment in the desert. And the man is bringing each of them back and you participate, you help them, you help them to the well. You get some things from the stores to cover them if they've lost their clothing. You show them around the place and you build a community with one another. Sure, there's some people in the community you don't really get on with. There's Ted who just makes you really angry, but you're together, you're in community, you're there for one another, and you're there because of the one who brought you there. Every now and again, you find yourself on the edge of this oasis looking out across the desert. And you can still see those mirages. You can still see the latest Ford Raptor SUV going across the sand dunes. You can see Burger King with its endless amount of Whopper burgers. You can see the parties full with the crazy, wild, awesome music and the scantily clad woman dancing all night long. You can see this. And as you're staring there and you're even considering taking a step out from the oasis towards it, the man who rescued comes up and says, turn from that. Turn from it. It's only going to destroy you. Stay here. And as he places his hand upon your shoulder, the mirages vanish. And you realize you're where you're supposed to be. Later that afternoon, one of the community members decides to leave. He steps out. He goes out into the oasis and he's missing for a week and a half. When the man that saved you finally brings him back, he, he's hobbling. He's lost part of his leg. His hand is missing and his face is deeply deeply distraught and distorted. And as he's sitting by the well, lapping from a cup, he shares about, oh, it was great. Oh, it was so good to go after those things. I'm, it was amazing for a second. And then I was destroyed. Friends, obedience to God 
is like this picture I've just placed in front of you. It's staying near to the source of fulfillment. It's important to keep this mind, mindset in mind when we're thinking through the idea of holiness. We can um, struggle with the perspective we see in the Pharisees tonight, in tonight's story, because we, we feel, we know we can come back. For them in that time, the Jewish perspective on sin was that it was almost like a nuclear bomb going off, that it laid waste to all of creation. It was so damaging that it would scorn the very earth that they walked on. So to involve yourself in sin meant death, physical death, as sin was abhorrent to life. For this poor woman who had been caught in adultery to the Pharisees, there was no way back for her at all. She was spoiled goods. For a lot of Christians, we base our idea of who God is and what he is like on two incredible stories. The prodigal son and the story of the lost sheep. Both are wonderful and beautiful and amazing stories of redemption, of being found and being brought back. And let me be clear, the truth of the story that Jesus will always come after you is absolutely true. But there is a risk. There is a mindset that can develop in us when we hear these stories and we don't dive deeper into this idea of obedience. It's a, it's a mindset that asking forgiveness is easier than asking permission or easier than obeying. It's the I can do what I want and Jesus will always take me back mindset. It's true. Jesus will always welcome you back. He'll always bring you back to the oasis. He'll always go after the lost sheep. But what these stories are also trying to tell each of us is that humankind is at its best. It's at its happiest. It's at its most fulfilled when it's close to God, when it's with the shepherd, when it's back in the house with the father. For all they lack, if, they, if we were to glean just a, the smallest bit of perspective from the Jewish Pharisees, it would be their perspective on the destructive and pervasive nature of sin. They took it seriously, and I think for many of us, we underestimate the corrosiveness and pervasiveness of it and how it can quickly drive a wedge between us and where we're supposed to be. Regardless of how far you go out, you will always be welcomed back. You will always be loved. To illustrate this, put yourselves in the shoes of the father in the prodigal son story. Put yourself in the shoes of the shepherd going after the lost sheep. You might have kids or, or family members or friends where this story I'm about to tell you is, is a regular occurrence. They run off. They do what they want. They hurt others. They hurt themselves. And then they finally come back and you greet them with tears, like just like the father does when he meets his son coming back after he's gone on away. You carry them, you hold them like the shepherd holds that battered and bruised sheep who's been out in the wilderness for too long. And you sit down with them a day or two later and you invite them to be part of what's going on at the house. You, in, you show them how, what it means to thrive as a sheep. They hang around for a while, but then they go out and away again. As a father myself, I know how heartbreaking that would be. I would still love them. I would always welcome them home. I would know they're selling themselves short. I'd know, but I'd know that they'd be, they'd be selling themselves short of what they could be truly like and what they could be truly living as. Consistently, we find ourselves looking for happiness in all the wrong places. Max Licato has a great story to illustrate this, and I've paraphrased it. Imagine you're arriving at a beach, and on the beach there's a fish. And you ask the question, is the fish happy? Probably not. How can we make the fish happy? How can we make him happy? What if we got him a million dollars of cash and put it all around the fish? He has everything financially he could ever, ever want. He could build the best aquarium ever. Is the fish happy? No. 
What if we gave him a beach chair and some sunglasses? Would the fish be happy then? No. What if we gave him some, a margarita, some pina coladas, some mai tais? Is he going to be happy then? No. What if we gave him playboy or playfish, images of goldfish and blowfish? Would that make him happy? No. The fish would never be happy on the beach because he wasn't designed for the beach. You weren't made for earth. You were made for eternity. You were made for a relationship with our creator. No new car, boat, boyfriend, vacation, likes on Instagram, amount of money, good hair, good body, pair of shoes will give you the fulfillment and joy that your heart craves. Some of us, and I recognize this tonight as we journey this, we're there right now. We're stuck in a cycle of unfulfillment, being lulled out into the sands away from the oasis. For many of us, some, some of those things would be things like overeating or the inability to stop overspending. Maybe you're hooked on smoking or drinking or easily readily available medical drugs, but they're, they're ruining your life. Maybe you're stuck in a world filled of porn. Or maybe you find yourself going from one wrong relationship to the next, to the next, to the next. Sin promises satisfaction at the cost of disobedience to God. So what do you do when you find yourself trapped? 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13 says that no temptation has overtaken you except what is common to mankind. And God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. Our God is faithful. He is, he is faithful. He is faithful. And he will always give you a way out. What do you do when you're tempted? I hope that you understand this powerful truth. Every temptation is an invitation to depend on Christ. Every time you feel trapped, it's an invitation to depend on the grace of Jesus. He doesn't look down on you and say, I'm embarrassed by you. I'm ashamed of you. Now go and do whatever you want, boo. He doesn't say that. He, he, says, you're, he says, go, be free. Because of my grace, you can be free. Turn back to the oasis. Turn back to the source of fulfillment. Do it with urgency. Go now. Don't hesitate. Be full of hope. You're longing for what is good. Don't get sold on a cheap knockoff. If the music team wants to begin coming out now, as we begin to wrap up our time together tonight, no more, no more. Go your way, go his way and walk in truth. You see, there's a big difference between Remorse and repentance. Remorse is, I got caught. I'm so sorry I got caught, but I got caught. Repentance is something entirely different. Repentance, well, re means to turn. Pent is what is high, like in a penthouse. So it's to turn from the lower things of the world to the higher things of God. Repentance. It's all about the re, and some of us, Tonight, we need to return to God. It's all about the re. When you feel trapped, when you feel caught, and when you feel broken and ashamed, what does Jesus not say? He doesn't say, that wasn't good. But go and do what makes you happy. He says, I've got a better path for you. I'm not going to let anyone else throw stones at you. Go and be free.
You were created to walk in truth, to be close to the true source of fulfillment. That's where you find real and lasting joy. When we struggle, when we're tempted, Jesus' grace will find us when we reach out for it. As a way of finishing up tonight, before I fully close this out with some prayer, I've invited the team to give us uh, the bridge and a chorus of a song as a way of us, wherever it is you may be at home, taking a moment and reflecting on this, not rushing into the next thing that's happening after this, not switching on to your Netflix show or whatever, but actually taking a moment to let this sink in. Where are you at? Where are you at with this? Are you in the oasis? Are you out in the desert lands wishing you were in the oasis? Have you been at the oasis and it's time to come back? Is it time to return? Is it time to repent? The beauty of the, the setup we've got going on with Church Online right now is if you need to talk to someone or you want to pray with someone right now, there's on the Church Online website, you can click that prayer button right now and there's a live host there who would love to talk to, with you more or pray with you more about this. Uh, if you're watching on Facebook, on YouTube, you can comment there. But if you're on Facebook, you can fire a message through to the actual church as well if this is something you wanted to be followed up on. So join with me as I pray. And with you, if you're watching with people, you can pray with one another as we finish our time together tonight. But let's, let's come to Jesus together tonight. Jesus, I thank you so much that we are able to do this in this way that we can be together, even though we're not physically together. Lord, I thank you that you sent your one and only son, Jesus Christ, to be a sacrifice for each and every single one of us so that we don't have to suffer the fate of sin as described in the story we heard about tonight, but we can come to you and you say you are free. Lord, for each and every single person who is watching this tonight, Lord, I pray that you meet with them intimately. And if it's for the first time for some of them, that is incredible, that is celebratory, that is amazing. May as they meet with you, may they lay down their own personal idea of truth, their own personal idea of happiness, and allow you to carry them to the oasis. For those who are returning for the hundredth time or for the first time, Lord, we pray for you to move powerfully in each and every single one of their hearts and minds and souls right this minute. May they come into a deeper understanding of who you are. Holy Spirit, move like nothing has ever moved before. Regardless of where our people are tonight, Lord, you can meet with them. Make us aware. Give us your eyes. Give us your heart. May we build our lives upon what it is that you have shown us, what it is you have taught us, Lord. Guide us and lead us in all things. In your holy and mighty and powerful name. Amen. Well, that's us this evening. We'd love to see you next week, hopefully in person. Stay tuned to the social medias and emails. They'll let us know what's going on. But if you're with people tonight, maybe turn and talk and pray together some more. If you want to connect with still with our host, you can do that in the chat sections and all the different platforms. But have a blessed evening. We miss you. Can't wait to see you again. Harida. Catch you later.